Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for uh, another edition in our Crisis to Resilience series here at Canada 2020. Uh, today, we're talking infrastructure um, and getting the spend right. There is a tremendous amount of opportunity um, in, uh, in in the infrastructure portfolio right now and responding to this moment. And we've got a really amazing program lined up for you today. Um, the uh, Before I jump into things here, I just wanted to quickly give a word of thanks to some of our partners who make the work that we do possible. These are our sustaining partners. They help us, um, they've helped us actually install a really virtually resilient uh, program this year, and I want to give thanks to them. Um, in terms of today, like I said, I'm, I'm moving pretty quickly here because we've got a really jam-packed program. Uh, first at 1.15 here today, we are uh, very pleased actually to be uh, featuring a conversation between uh, the Honorable Catherine McKenna, the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, and uh, Jason Bordoff, the Professor of Professional Practice in International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Um, and then following that, we will have a response panel moderated by uh, Helena Gaspard, a friend of our organization. Uh, she's the Director of Governance and Institutions at the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy. She'll be in conversation with Craig Stewart, the Vice President of Federal Affairs uh, at the Insurance Bureau of Canada, uh, Carol Saab, the CEO of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, and Jacob Glick, the Vice President of Public Policy uh, at TELUS. Um, many of you have been on these sessions before, you know the drill, but uh, if you do have a question for um, for our panel, both our, our Minister McKenna's conversation with, uh, with uh, Professor Bordoff or our response panel, you can do that in two ways. If you are watching on Zoom, uh, you can use the Q&A function. Our team will be responding to them uh, there. And if you're watching on Facebook Live, use the chat and we'll, uh, we'll get questions. Again, we, we may not have time to get to every one of them, um, but we will do our best uh, to do so. Quickly, before I hand things off to uh, Minister McKenna, uh, just a, a promo note. Uh, actually, on Friday of this week, we're going to be paying attention to small business. We're going to be spending some time with uh, the Honorable Mary Ng and an excellent uh, group of response panelists. And then next week, uh, on December 10th, we're going to be uh, focusing on Indigenous economic reconciliation, something that we focused on a lot here at Canada 2020 with the Honourable uh, Mark Miller. Um, and and with, with that, I will uh, hand things off to um, Minister McKenna. Um, you are actually in the driver's seat today. You are uh, moderating our conversation and uh, with, uh, with Professor Bardoff. So I will hand things off to you. I want to thank you both very much for your time and take it away. Uh, well, thanks very much, Alex. Uh, it's great uh, to be here, and it's great to be with my my friend, Jason uh, Bordoff. Um, so just to give you a little bit of background, as I was thinking about who would be good to talk about uh, infrastructure, in particular, uh, clean infrastructure, um, I thought of Jason. Uh, we've known each other for a while, Jason. I, I was trying to think about where we first met. Um, a while ago, I've spoken, spoken at Columbia at your Center on Global Energy Policy, and I think it's also appropriate because you uh, were there with Obama in the early days when there was also an economic crisis um, and you were working on energy and climate. So I think you're certainly well placed uh, to give us some insights. And, and also, I think, you know, a lot of Canadians are spending, well, we've been glued to our TV sets, I guess, like Americans, too, uh, you know, trying to figure out what does this mean? New Biden administration. Um and so I really wanna wanna thank you for joining us. Uh, you're joining us from New York, right? Yes. Live from New York. Live from New York. Exactly. You kind of set up like you're you're in New York. Um, we'll do it on Saturday night next time. 
we do it on Saturday night. So, um, so first of all, from my perspective, actually, I've got my infrastructure, uh, public transit. It's a canoe, so I should say uh, I'm I'm speaking to everyone from the uh, the traditional territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe peoples, and uh, I do have public transit. That's a hundred year old birch bark uh, Anishinaabe canoe. But I spent a lot of time, obviously, thinking about infrastructure. And Jason, you may not know this, but our infrastructure program, um, it's $180 billion, which may not uh, seem like a lot in your terms. It's a lot in Canadian uh, terms. And we leverage other levels of government and other partners. So it's really it's really a half a trillion dollars in, my, in investments we're making in infrastructure. And coming from my previous job, I'm certainly now focused on all right, we've said net zero by 2050. Um, we need to get multiple benefits. Um, as I say, I'm a mom. We need to get out of every dollar. Uh, we need to get uh, triple benefits, um, climate, uh, jobs. Of course, we're in a pandemic. That's critically important. And we need to think about inclusivity, um, which I think is, is quite aligned with what you guys uh, have been doing. And um, we just had the fall economic statement. Um, that's a big event here in Canada. Our first female finance minister talked about the importance um, of creating jobs, uh, about the importance um, of infrastructure. And we made a couple announcements, uh, kind of as a prelude uh, to our stimulus um, and new, new uh, climate plan. But we talked about things like in investments in trees, investments um, in electric vehicle charging, um, also, new things like border carbon adjustments, looking at that, um, a green bond and a sustainable finance task force. So we're thinking about this also from a, an economic perspective. But let's go to the U.S. Um, so it was kind of a long few years. Um, uh, I'm happy to see a lot of the folks that I worked with, um, from John Kerry uh, to Brian Deese. I understand he's going to go um, and head the, the National uh, Economic Council. Um, the folks are back because um, we had to spend a lot of time working with uh, governors um, and uh, with businesses and with cities who did step up on climate. But I look at this platform. Biden said a $2 trillion sustainable infrastructure, clean and inclusive energy program. What is this all about? What are you, what's your understanding of what they're trying to do with this infrastructure program? Yeah, it's great to be with you, Minister. And um, thanks for the invitation and for the leadership and work on climate with, as you said, many of my mm -hmm. colleagues uh, in the second Obama term after I had left after serving in the first term. So um I think it is, uh, let me set the frame, a broad framework for how uh, to think about the incoming Biden administration and what it means for climate change. And then we can go into some of the specifics and details about what's possible, particularly if we have a divided Congress, which seems more likely than not, not, not definite. We'll see. We have a Georgia runoff election in the Senate, as you may know. Um, the, the first thing to say is the urgency. If you look at the transition website, uh, go to it if you haven't seen it or, and, and the viewers, um, <clears throat> there's a button in the upper right corner called priorities with a drop down menu with only four things. And one of them is climate change. Uh, climate change was a very high priority for the Obama administration, but, but I think this is significant, that they are identifying climate change as one of their very top priorities, and that it is going to permeate uh, in many ways throughout everything that the administration does as one of the top priorities they have to execute and deliver on because they understand the existential nature of the risk. Second is that that priority 
intersects with the other three priorities in that drop-down menu, which are the pandemic, economic recovery, and racial justice, the sort of his historical reckoning with racial injustice that we're going through in this country uh, now. Um, and, and you see that when you look at the climate plans. If you click through in that drop-down menu to climate change, you'll see a set of ambitious proposals, all of them very much framed around domestic economic recovery and job creation in infrastructure, in transportation, in retrofitting buildings, and a host of other things. So, you know, President-elect Biden will take office with an economy in a deep hole, unemployment somewhere around uh, 8%, billions of people struggling to pay their bills and mortgages coming out of the economic impacts of the pandemic. That is going to be uh, top of the agenda to figure out how to get the pandemic under control and bring the economy back. And the lens through which one would view strong climate action will be through what helps to spur economic recovery. Uh, and, and, and we'll come to a minute, one of the first uh, tools at their disposal will hopefully be a stimulus package that I think can do a lot to help spur clean energy. The last point I want to make, because I, I think we'll come to this maybe later on, is um, I thought it was significant, and, and I presume intentional, that someone you worked with, uh, Secretary John Kerry, that President-elect Biden announced his climate envoy, not as part of his environmental team, but as part of his national security team. I think that is significant, and I think it represents an understanding that climate change is a critical environmental issue, but it's also a critical foreign policy and national security issue. And we will rejoin Paris on day one, but that's just step one. And there's a set of things that need to go be way beyond that to integrate climate more deeply into all aspects of foreign policy, international economics, the trade agenda, and everything else, which will affect how one thinks about investments in infrastructure, not just at home, but, but around the world. Uh, well, so I must say I'm really hardened, and it is great that everyone is thinking about climate in a different way, because I always found it strange, so it would be like, you know, a siloed. Um, it's actually a cross-cutting everything issue, um, and certainly when we talk about infrastructure, every dollar we spend, either, as I say to folks, it either makes us uh, more uh, resilient or less resilient. It either increases emissions or reduces emissions. It's a little bit binary, so we should... Uh, uh, be thinking about it in that way, but also very much on jobs, um, which I think is key. And, and this is exactly, I think, how we are thinking about this here. So I think there's huge alignment with um, with the Biden, uh, the incoming Biden administration. Um, but so like everyone here, I know more about the Electoral College than I thought I would. Like I know about states. I know about certain counties. It's amazing. Um, so what's going to happen? Like, and, and I I think we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, you don't, maybe, you, you know, we'll see what happens. There's a couple Senate races, but what, you know, the machinations of U.S. politics. What does this mean in the current context with the House being where it is, with the Senate? Um, can you get it? Can, you know, how hard is it to get an agenda through? You were in the White House. Um you know, how hard will it to be to do internationally? Um, of course, bilaterally, we're thinking about that, too. And then multilaterally. Yeah, well, look, everything is hard, particularly when you have a divided government. It's even harder. But there's a lot that I think uh, one can do. And so, uh, as I said earlier, we have the two, two runoff elections in the state of Georgia. We'll see how they go. I think it's more likely than not that Republicans will maintain a narrow majority in the Senate. And that means Mitch McConnell will be the majority leader. And we'll see what approach he takes. He did, took an approach under Obama that was really um, not cooperative, I think, in trying to bring things to the floor and build bipartisan consensus to get uh, big legislation done. And, and the Democrats lost some seats in the House and so have a narrow majority there. And there's 
a lot of heterogeneity within the party, more to the left and, and more moderates. Uh, so you can't lose too many Democrats even in the House. The way I think about what the agenda might look like might be in three broad buckets. One is uh, what can be done with Congress and, and needs congressional action. The second is what can be done with existing executive authority in the domestic context. And then the third is what can be done with, you know, when, you, when you're more constrained with Congress, you look to what you can do with existing authority. And one of those authorities is the conduct of foreign policy. And we can talk about what I think can be done with foreign policy because it can be quite a powerful tool to drive climate action. Um, with Congress, um, even with a divided uh, Congress divided Senate, as I said, there still needs to be support for the U.S. economy. Uh, we are in a deep economic hole, and with a reeling economy, uh, I think both sides will need to come together. There'll be debate over how big a recovery package should be, over how what it should go toward, uh, how much relief for the states, for example. But I think there'll be a meaningful uh, continued investment, fiscal stimulus investment in, in, in the economy, and that provides an opportunity to invest, particularly when the cost of government borrowing is so low when real interest rates are negative in real terms. Now is the time to make investments that pay dividends in the future by investing in smart and strategic ways, including in infrastructure um, and in clean energy. So I think support for renewable energy, uh, incentives to prevent the early retirement of nuclear power. We, we don't want to dig the hole deeper in terms of zero carbon nuclear power. Investment in other forms of low carbon infrastructure and rail and transit. I think all of those will be things that will be high priorities to invest in. The idea being that, you know, President-elect Biden takes office uh, with some similarity to the situation with which President Obama took office um, uh, a decade ago coming out of the Great Recession. Um, and one of the things we did in the stimulus package then, the American, the, the ARA, the, the Recovery Act, was large investments in clean energy, which helped, not by themselves, but played a meaningful role in bringing, why solar costs are 90% cheaper today, battery costs are 85% cheaper today, you make investments to drive those costs down. Uh, doing that today through investments in the kinds of infrastructure I just talked about, and also in new technologies and innovation. And I think there's an innovation agenda that can also attract support on both sides of the aisle we can talk about. Uh, and then I'll just, uh, on existing authority, um, there, there, there is a lot that can be done there. there are, the Clean Air Act uh, gives uh, the federal government not just the authority, but the responsibility to regulate greenhouse gas emissions in the power sector, in cars, and in trucks. You'll see stricter regulations on, say, methane emissions from oil and gas production, uh, and then other tools like the power of government procurement, uh, such mm -hmm. a large purchaser to drive down, drive clean energy and drive down costs through scale. Um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is kind of a sleeper, small, obscure agency, but quite important, actually. With a Democratic mm -hmm. majority, it can do a lot. Uh, authority over, over leasing of the, feder of, 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 of the uh, federal lands and waters. So I would imagine a big push for more offshore wind leasing, for example. So there are several tools that, even without Congress, the administration can pursue, not without some legal risk particularly with a more conservative judiciary and a 6-3 Supreme Court now. Uh, and then again, the conduct of foreign policy, we can come to that if you want down the road. We will definitely come to that. Um, so actually, I think it's interesting because the things, um, and we'll come probably to this too later, um, but it's a lot of the things that we were working bilaterally uh, on methane, vehicle uh, emission standards, 
Um, the, these are things that I think are going to come back, as you've said, because the Environmental Protection Agency, you, you, you know, you have the responsibility at the federal level. Um, I certainly remember fondly Gina McCarthy. <laughs> She's hilarious from Boston. We worked very closely together. Um, we've been waiting, um, just so you know, on our uh, light duty vehicle regs um, because we need them to be aligned. There's a supply chain um, competitiveness issue. So I think that um, probably that is a, is a, a positive thing um, from from our vantage point in methane, uh, we've been moving on methane so uh, and clean fuels. Uh, so these are all areas um, that uh, it sounds like you'll be able to get some progress on from a regulatory uh, perspective. Um, so maybe let's just talk to the stimulus a little bit. So I was speaking, um, I was trying to get lessons learned from what you guys, you, you worked on the uh, recovery. Um, 08, 09 was not like this, a very different uh, recession, but very tough. Um, and you came in and uh, you mentioned a few things. Um, I think, you know, we're, we've been doing a lot of work here. I spoke to John Bakari, who was there uh, at the time. Um, I think he was undersecretary for transportation, giving some ideas. And what are, what are the opportunities? I mean, we're thinking about this, obviously, too. We've made some down payments, um, but our growth agenda, we're going to be launching um, and in particular, I, I didn't give you a heads up on this. We did have a bit of a pre-conversation. But when I think about Ernie Moniz and your Department of Energy, you were doing some interesting financing. Um, I, we have a Canada Infrastructure Bank that's under my it's under my purview. It's a little bit different, um, but it's intended to use innovative financing to spur private the private sector. Um, and we're you know they've come out with their growth plan. Lots of focus on clean energy, clean. Um, infrastructure. Do you expect anything like that? Because um, you guys were being quite innovative then. And what are like, what are the things and in infrastructure spends that you think would be smart? And I know you guys as your institute have been, you guys have been thinking about these things. Yeah, look, I think there's a huge amount that, that one can do and, and that makes sense to do. I mean, I think about it as this like Venn diagram. There's a circle of how you spend money in the way that is best to um, rebuild the economy, provide fiscal mm -hmm. stimulus and get people back to work. Uh, and then there's a circle of how do you spend money in a way that really helps to promote decarbonization faster. And what we want is the overlap between those two things. And, and there's actually a lot. Uh, there, is, there is a good amount of overlap between those two things. So that's what we should be uh, thinking about, among obviously other priorities. We need to get fiscal stimulus money into the hands of states and small businesses and, and people struggling to, to pay the bills. Um, as I said, there are some similarities, but some important differences with the situation today versus uh, 12, uh, 11 years ago. Um, in 2009, things were trending actually worse. Now they're trending a little bit better. 2009 started with a crisis in the financial system. Here, the economy was relatively healthy. We intentionally put it on pause to cope with the pandemic and, and put it place lockdowns. So and, and there's more room for fiscal maneuvering now. And and, and my, my former colleague, Jason Furman, who uh, was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, um, advisor to Obama, wrote uh, a good piece in Foreign Affairs recently about this. Because of that, because the cost of government borrowing is so low and negative in real terms, now's the time to think about the investments that really help to promote economic activity and job growth, but 
but also paying long-term economic uh, dividends. And so there I would think about building retrofits and energy efficiency and EV charging and long-distance transmission, transit, rail, infrastructure for low-carbon fuels. And I think a lot of these things, there can be cooperation uh, with Canada on around carbon capture and hydrogen infrastructure projects, um, maritime infrastructure to help figure out longer-term strategies to move in a lower carbon direction in ports uh, or maybe with fuels like ammonia down the road. Um, and then there's an infrastructure agenda that I think is uh, quite important and also an area where there can be cooperation on R&D. We recently put out a roadmap for what it looks like to launch a national energy innovation mission in the United States. And what it, what it would what would it look like to really go big on clean energy R&D? Because we know what some of the solutions look like to uh, deep decarbonization. Um, creating zero net zero carbon uh, electricity with a lot more renewables, batteries, maybe some gas with CCS and other ways to firm up the grid, nuclear power. You can electrify some things that aren't electric today, but not everything. And I think when we want to think about heavy industry, cement, steel, shipping, um, uh, aviation, maybe parts of buildings, maybe heavy-duty freight, we're going to need other solutions beyond uh, electricity with, with net zero emissions. Um, and we need to be investing today to drive the cost of those things down in the future, as we did for solar, wind, and batteries a decade ago. So that's great. I mean, so this is uh, just exactly the way we're thinking about it. So the fall economic statement um, was really important because it was intended, one, to talk about how we're responding from a health and economic perspective to the pandemic and to give people confidence, including our vaccine strategy. But it was also very much to set out where are we going and how do we see what investments we need to make? And uh, the uh, finance minister talked about three to 4% of GDP being invested. Significant amount would be in infrastructure. That's, that's 70 to $100 billion that she, she noted that we would need for our growth agenda. And as you say, we've got interest rate work lows. Canada's uh, net debt to GDP is the lowest in the G7. Um, I mean, when you talk about retro energy efficient uh, retrofits, EV charging, transmission, rail, um, looking at heavy industry, all these areas, I think, are huge opportunities that, um, I mean, I'm excited to be part of, uh, that, that many of them are part of uh, my portfolio. I'd add natural infrastructure. We started looking at infrastructure differently, too. So that, I think, is an opportunity. But let's move to innovation, because I think this is where this gets me really excited, Um one, we need innovation, um, and uh, I think you've set this out very well. I don't know. Can everyone get this book, Jason? Just available on our website, uh, energypolicy.columbia.edu, so you'll find it there, if you do, or just Google Energizing America. It's really great. It's a roadmap to launch a national energy innovation mission, and I, I remember mission innovation. I mean, it's still around, but I think it was a bit more of an um, it's Bill Gates initiative, but also working with governments and the price of admission was doubling your investment in clean innovation, uh, Canada joined. But I think there's huge opportunities. And I think what's great, like I, I just am such a bit of a policy nerd. Um, I look here at this chart, which uh, people can't read, but it's like, what are the technology pillars that we need? Um, and that you're giving guidance. It's funny, you've actually like written out things. Like, I don't know if you've written out pieces for the new government, uh, the, the new Biden administration to just take. But you talk about things like clean electricity generation, advanced transportation systems, clean fuels, modern electric power systems, clean and efficient buildings, industrial decarbonization, carbon capture use and sequestration, clean agricultural systems, and of course, carbon dioxide renewal, removal, which we're going to have to do because to be net zero, that is just a must have. And we're still far away in 
almost all of these. Some are more advanced, as you said, renewables, um, maybe even cleaning up the electricity uh, system, although we're, we're at 80% clean. I don't know. What, what's the U.S. at, Jason, in terms of in, clean, in, in, clean electricity? Uh, like, you guys like 60 or something? I'm no, making it's, it. not, it's, not, uh, it's not that high yet. I mean, 20% nuclear yeah, I mean, you know why i'm doing this is for all the canadians so go pitch americans on clean uh, electricity from canada because <laughs> we have a lot <laughs> we can help you um but maybe talk about the the innovation agenda and and get people excited and where are the areas that you think are real opportunities including maybe for canada and the u.s to partner yeah i think there are a lot of opportunities there and i appreciate the shout out for the energizing america report uh, i'm really and, proud, and i must proud say because it, it was varun you didn't even yes. send it to me so varun sivaram who is extremely brilliant um he uh, was in touch and sent me a copy so shout out to Varun. yeah no and to, i was going to give a shout out to him and also to his co-authors so uh david uh sandalo and uh, julio friedman and and some partners at another think tank we did this with so um they deserve the credit it's um a great project. And and the idea was we identified about a year and a half ago, you know, what would be an important research question we could undertake that we saw a policy window opening a bit down the road. And if we could do the work in advance, policymakers would be ready to pick up on, hopefully, uh, when the research was ready and, and where there was a policy need. And by that, I mean, um, we thought there would be an opportunity to go big on energy innovation. That is an area where historically there has been bipartisan support, particularly when you cast a wide net on the technologies you're talking about, not just renewables and batteries, but advanced nuclear, carbon capture, uh, for example. Um, but the question is, how do you do it? Um, it's, it's easy to spend more government money, as you know, but it's hard to sometimes spend it really well. So if you want to invest a lot more in energy and R&D and innovation, how should you do it? What are you invested in? What technologies? What sectors? Basic research, uh, the national labs, universities, demonstration, deployment, tax credits, loan guarantees. So that was our question we, we gave ourselves. And that report is, uh, is an attempt to answer it. And I think what it shows is how broad the need is, all the different tools. Uh, I won't go into all the details about how we suggest deploying this. But I think it also highlights why this is such an important area to focus on. The International Energy Agency did a great uh, study recently and in their analysis, um, in a net zero 2050 world, a net zero 2050 scenario, half of the cumulative emission reductions between now and 2050 come from technologies that are not yet commercially available. So there is a huge amount of focus, as there should be and has been, on scaling up renewables, solar and wind, deploying electric vehicles. These are all enormously important. Battery technology to balance intermittency in the grid. Um, they're, they're not sufficient. They're very important and we can do a lot with them. But as I said a minute ago, there are many other sectors where we're going to need continued innovation to figure out how to generate low carbon steel or cement, how to balance part of the grid. You'll, you'll get solar and wind up significantly, but there will be some component of firm load that may come from hydrogen or, or, or gas with CCS. Um, think about advanced nuclear technology. Think about the role uh, green and blue hydrogen can play. So we, we can electrify some of that. We can't electrify all of it. And, um, and, and for those hard-to-abate sectors, that's where we need to think about uh, new technologies. And, and they're not new. I mean, we know how to do that. It's just expensive today. We need continued technological innovation and demonstration and deployment to drive down costs. And I think this is an area that is ripe not just for increased investment, but for collaboration, uh, because different 
countries bring different skills to bear. Uh, and I think there's enormous opportunities there that will then lead to commercial opportunities for uh, firms to uh, build new companies, to invest uh, at home and abroad in these new uh, rapidly growing clean energy sectors. Uh, well, I get very excited about the innovation agenda. I mean, there's some technology we need to scale. Uh, price needs to come down. And there's like new innovations. So for all the young people out there, we need you. We need you to, of course, be in the streets, but we also need you to be in the labs um, uh, finding solutions uh, as well. So let's talk. And, and it, we will take a few questions. So I think we've got till 2 o'clock. And then I have to go to question period, sadly. I'd rather do question period probably here. Um but uh, so think about your questions. Uh, but let's talk about now. Um, I want to go to maybe the international agenda. Um, so let's start very quickly on the big international. And of course, we're just self-interested. So then come to Canada. And I, I do have like what we did. So everyone can Google U.S.-Canada joint statement on climate, energy and Arctic leadership from 2016, March 2016. That was like early days for us. I remember just being in awe, going to the White House, we'd negotiated a deal, um, which was amazing in climate, energy, Arctic. Um, so I think that there's opportunities from there. But but maybe very quickly, like you said, day one Paris Agreement, woohoo. Uh, Canada, we created, I had to go and literally pitch uh, Europe and China to create a Minister on Climate Action to replace the U.S. to keep momentum going while you guys were a bit on hold. Although states and cities and businesses really stepped up. You're back. So what's going to happen on the international front? Yeah, no, I really appreciate the question because I do think it's an area where there's enormous opportunity uh, to do more. And and as I said, that's an area where there's significant um, authority over the conduct of foreign policy. So re-enter the Paris Agreement and uh, having someone of Secretary Kerry's stature as the climate envoy is just an enormous yeah. demonstration of the importance that I think the administration places on climate diplomacy and interaction with countries uh, around the world. Because um, again, 85% of emissions come from outside uh, the US and we have to work with uh, countries around, uh, around the world to elevate ambition. I think that will be a major area of focus, not just re-entering Paris, but how do we think about collectively raising ambition so we can go into the next round of UN meetings in Glasgow roughly a year from now with a really strong and ambitious set of targets consistent with where we need to get to. I think you need to couple that with an increased focus on implementation strategies. It's great to, it is necessary and important to have higher ambition a year from now in Glasgow, but we should recognize that many countries are already falling short of the Paris commitments uh, yeah. that they made. So ambition is, is important, but we need to focus on a strategy of financial and technical assistance uh, to help countries make sure that we have strategies to achieve these targets. I think you also would want to integrate climate change more deeply is a priority item uh, into a range of other foreign policy objectives. So the international trade agenda, I suspect with a Biden versus a Trump administration, you'll see some return to WTO norms, thinking about bilateral or multilateral trade agreements, WTO reforms uh, that might allow um, – greater ability to treat low carbon content products differently or expand the scope of permissible Are you talking about border carbon energy. adjustments? Well, I mean, I think I think they'll 
President-elect Biden has said that he favors carbon border adjustments. The European Union has said that they're going to pursue a strategy to put those in place. I would hope there'd be an ability to cooperate and, and work collectively to figure out how to do that rather than target carbon border adjustments at one another. So I hope there'll be an opportunity to yeah. use diplomacy to think about how to do that to level the playing field for domestic firms and raise ambition for others. Another important tool, I think, is multilateral finance. So in 2018, the Development Finance Corporation replaced its predecessor, uh, the OPEC, um, has greater authority in, in many respects. I won't go through all the different ways, but that's really important to help think about how to work with multilateral uh, finance institutions around the world and regional development banks to um, develop strategies that work economically as well as environmentally for rapidly growing emerging market countries to invest in cleaner energy. About half, more than half, I think, of development finance today goes to the electricity uh, sector. Many countries lack access, as you know, to electricity or, and, 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 or reliable electricity. In the campaign, President-elect Biden said he would hold China accountable for coal investments through Belt and Road. Well, you can't beat something with nothing. So if you want to do that, you have to put a package on the table that works for emerging market countries from a financial standpoint. And I think uh, DFC, the Development Finance Corporation, will be one way to do that. Development assistance at the Treasury Department, uh, debt relief negotiations will be going on that could include a climate dimension. Uh, I think there's a range of tools in, in, in foreign policy and international economics that the administration could use to elevate climate in the agenda. So that's great. Uh, fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement, folks. We need to land the market text. That was a text I was responsible. We need the rules now for that. So hopefully that was actually, I looked at this 2016 agreement. And of course, Mark Carney working on climate uh, disclosure. I think that's really important. That also is related to where the money goes. Um, and when we did Powering Past Coal, you guys were gone uh, away for a little bit, but we did Powering Past Coal. Um, getting countries off coal does require supporting them and in investing. Um, they yeah, need I, often I, a differential because of risk and other reasons. And so we need to figure that out. I'm just going to quickly but you can't talk that. about that because we got to go to Canada now because we're okay. very self-interested here. So now <laughs> let's talk about, so I've got this like really nice picture of the prime minister uh, with President Obama. I remember it was just amazing going there and hearing them talk so strongly about climate, energy, and Arctic. So bilaterally, what's the opportunity, do you think? Is it is it like updating this agreement, including more on infrastructure innovation, which I kind of think, but I don't know if you have specific ideas. Um, I think we helped push each other. You helped push us on vehicle efficiency, on methane. Um, we were kind of coming in then, um, and I think that was important because we were able to land those um, here. Uh, but any ideas on, on, like, is this important? Should we have a bilateral agenda? I hope the answer is yes. And, and ideas, ideas about what we should be focused on. Yeah, look, I think there are many areas of cooperation. I mean, we are in many ways an integrated uh, market. And so when you think about uh, electricity grids and opportunities to uh, work together to develop lower carbon system, the hydropower that, that Canada has, um, the automotive sector, working together on setting standards for clean energy technologies to grow the potential uh, market uh, on both ends. Um, I think there's a lot, and, and we've seen some examples of this even in the last several years, despite the federal government, the climate change partnerships, for example, between Canada uh, and, and, and California with, with Mary Nichols to work together on cleaner transportation uh, that can be ramped up um, on, on, on both sides of the border. I think those are all important priorities. I think we will um, we'll see elevated 
a clearly elevated ambition, and and I think Secretary Kerry will work with countries to try to, try to uh, raise, uh, ambition raise ambition across the board. And uh, uh, so, uh, anyway, I, th- I think there are and, and returning to and building on the, as you said a moment ago, the uh, items that were in the 2016 agreement. I wasn't there at the time, but on methane, on the Arctic, on fuel economy, on research and development, all of these are incredibly important priorities still. And there's a lot more that can be done to work together uh, to to elevate ambition. And we should remember how how necessary that is, just to put it all in context, when I say sort of Secretary Kerry, you know, helping countries work together to, to, to set higher, their sites higher, we, we're nowhere close to being on track for numbers like one and a half and two degrees Celsius. That's the starting point, right? We're, we put the entire four billion, five billion people under lockdown this year, uh, basically put the global economy on hold to deal with this pandemic. Emissions are going to fall somewhere around 8%. If you take one and a half degrees Celsius seriously, emissions have to fall every year for the next decade at that level. I mean, it's just a sobering reminder of how staggering the challenges and the scale of transformation needed. And we can't do that unless we work together. Well, I can't tell you that I, I, you know, talked to some folks in the U.S. and like the level of ambition, um, it's just it's just really great and and really focus on being practical. Um, and I, I think like it was certainly you talked about, I, I've already said it, but I mean, look, we have clean electricity. You guys, I think, have said you want to be uh, fully 100% clean by 2035. Is that right? Um, that's 2035 very electricity for the U.S. 2058 um, so, for the economy. Yeah. So you need us, I think. We have great opportunities. We're already doing that, uh, clean electricity, but I think there's there's huge opportunities there. Our supply chains are so linked, so certainly um, on uh, cars, uh, electric vehicles. Um, uh, I think that when we look at standards, you already talked about that, but everything from vehicle efficiency standards to, look, to um, low-carbon fuels, to all sorts of things. So um, I guess the only thing, this isn't really a question, it's just a statement, um, and I know that you don't control everything in the United States, but uh, we are certainly hopeful uh, that um, that it's not by American at the cost of not partnering with Canada, your largest trading partner. Um, I think we have an integrated market, and, and we're certainly hopeful. That is always a worry. We, you know, Democrats, we work, we don't run, we don't get to, well, some people get to vote, Canadians get to vote in U.S. elections because they're Americans, but uh, you know, we we work with whomever is there. Uh, we were able to land NAFTA, um, but uh, we negotiated NAFTA. But we certainly hope that you remember that we're your partners, um, and that we we want to, we want uh, to make sure that uh, you know we have the opportunity to uh, find solutions together. So now um, I've given us not very much time. We've got six minutes, so I don't know if we're doing like speed dating questions or something. But maybe Alex, do you have any questions from anyone? I do. I think we've got time probably for two. Um, so our sure. first question, um, and Minister McKenna, maybe you can take this first and then we can go to Jason. Um, the question is, the transition to a low carbon and climate resilient economy will require significant investment in clean infrastructure, as you both talked about. Today. Yeah. Public funds alone cannot meet such a level of investment. So how do we mobilize private capital to assist with this significant investment? So Minister McKenna, take that first. So I think that's a critically important question because even internationally, there's a lot of focus. We need a pathway to $100 billion. I'm like, gosh, we need trillions. We need trillions if we're going to do it. I don't even know how many trillions. It's been different estimates of 
you know, quantums of tens of trillions of dollars. So we certainly can't do that. Government just does not have the firepower and it doesn't make sense that we're not all working together. So, I mean, in Canada, I've talked about our 180 trillion, a billion dollar infrastructure program. So leverage that we're half a trillion, but that's still nowhere near where we need to be on infrastructure investments. So we've got the Canada Infrastructure Bank. It just announced um, it's $35 billion, but it just announced a $10 billion shorter term growth plan, which is right, fo rightly focused on what can we get done soon that'll create jobs, but also lead us, um, you know, into a cleaner future. And actually, interestingly, there they uh, have done a you know, clean ag. We haven't talked a lot about agriculture. That's got to be part of the solution. So um, that's uh, that's really important. I mean, I think the work Mark Carney's doing is also really important because climate disclosure, if you have to disclose, you're going to make different decisions. And I think this is where um, I'm going to be blunt. Um, I'm quite a blunt person, as people know. Uh, I think that the business community, some of them have been amazing and some of them have not caught up with risk. You should be focused on risk. And risk doesn't just mean quarterly risk. It means risk to your actual existence. And Mark Carney, I think, has talked about this, but others, many others have talked about this. If you don't have a plan uh, for climate change, uh, you may be out of business. Um, because if you're making investments, there will be likely stranded assets. Um, and we, well, there will be stranded assets. And we're going to have to, you know, people need to be making decisions based on the science. We talk about evidence-based decision-making. Everyone needs to make that um, and, and businesses owe that to uh, their shareholders. So um, that's how I see it. But I, like, I actually feel relatively positive. I mean, you've seen, you know, uh, managers like you've seen BlackRock, you've seen others like really talk about this and push this. But we need to see a lot more. And there's still investments, still investments in coal. Like investing in coal makes no sense, but that's still happening. So we have to, you know, really be pushing that. Um, but then once... It happens. I think, you know, things can happen very quickly. We've seen the costs of, you know, we talked about solar, the costs of solar go, going down in an exponential rate, the same with battery storage. So I think there's a huge opportunity and that's where the money is. Um, and people will go where there are investment opportunities. But Jason is way probably more knowledgeable. I talked way too much. You should go, Jason. No, I think you've, you've, you've covered the answer really well. And, and, and what you said about Coal is important. Not only, you know, there's a lot of focus on not investing in new coal. I don't think there's enough focus sometimes on the fact that if we never built another new coal plant, but just run the existing fleet to the end of its normal economic life, we would blow through our Paris climate goals. Yeah. And so thinking about strategies that help countries think about existing infrastructure is going to be really important uh, as well. Look, I mean, uh, on how to drive, you're right, we are not going to government spend our way out of the climate challenge, where because whatever amount of money you might think the government can put to work is dwarfed by the amount of private capital that's out there, and we need that to shift where it's going and come off the sidelines. And I wouldn't have spent a career working in policy and built a center focused on policy uh, design if I didn't think policy was critical to this. We're going to need to change incentives, internalize the social cost of carbon, internalize externalities, uh, carbon price, or other government policies that, that, that do what government policy is designed to do, which is to account for pollution and make sure that people are, are considering that in the decisions they're making. And then, uh, and that's going to shift where the capital goes. I think that's really important uh, through contracts for different differences, approaches to de-risk investments, to invest in innovation early stage, to drive down the cost of things until they are at a stage where the private sector can pick them up for commercialization and deployment. Um, policy is critical to this. 
Well, thanks. And I, I didn't actually talk about carbon pricing. Obviously, that that is part of this. Carbon pricing is key, but also regs on clean fuels and uh, on methane. You're driving change, and there's different ways you do this. Um, okay, I guess, do we have time for a last question, Alex? So I, it'll be super quick. So this comes from uh, Kumsa Baker. Can you expand more on triple bottom line, specifically on inclusivity? How can government prioritize inclusivity with existing dollars being spent? Uh, what benchmarks, key performance indicators, agreements can be used to ensure that the government is truly achieving inclusivity as new good jobs are being created in skilled trades? So, uh, Minister McKenna, do you want to take that off? That's, and, that's uh, like a, they're like metrics. We want everything. Okay. So the uh, ones exactly. that I have, I have looked at, and I, I'm working with. Stats can because we need we need evidence, um, but we are not making infrastructure investments always in communities of need. <laughs> like how bad is that? We're making investments, you know, that that we people who need the investments the most are not getting it. And uh, if you read, I actually really think encourage people to read Joe Biden's uh, with the Biden's uh, two trillion dollar plan. They really talk about inclusivity. They talk about the most marginalized who did the least to cause climate change or environmental degradation are the ones paying the cost. That's drinking water. That's that's not clean air. And it's the same in Canada with Indigenous peoples. Every investment we make, we need to be thinking about that. And that's what I'm now doing. We need to develop better major, like better tools to do that. But I'll give an example. Um, I just made an announcement. Um, it, it was um, uh, with Ahmed Hussein in Toronto, uh, a lower income neighborhood, and it was a disaster mitigation project. And the excitement around this project, because it wasn't just jobs immediately, which it was, it wasn't just about climate change, because uh, with extreme weather, they're seeing much more flooding. It was literally about people like businesses being impacted and kids not being able to go to school and houses, you know, people who couldn't get insurance. And these were people who could not afford this. And so that's what inclusivity looks like. It means thinking about what are the impacts uh, of you know the decisions you make both in a negative and a positive way and so I think this is critically important and it's a real shift from how I think we've thought about um, making decisions um, I, I think that's racialized communities I think that that is indigenous communities um, it's also people who live in rural areas because I think we don't think about inclusive I think we got to broaden how we think about that and make everyone part of the solution that's extremely important to me. Yeah, I know we're at two minutes over. I'll just, I you can't overstate the importance of this, uh, it, as you said, in President-elect Biden's agenda. And and I think in the last, in, in recently, in the last year or two, this convergence, this coming together of the environmental movement, the climate movement with the racial justice community is, is very important. And it's going to have long-term impacts for how we think about climate policy, thinking about the impacts of climate change on agricultural workers on low income and historically disadvantaged communities thinking about where uh, communities that have historically been affected by climate change and pollution from uh, the energy we've been using for uh, a long time, the impacts of uh, affordability of climate policy and of energy in, in low-income communities in, in the U.S., but but in the global south as well. This is about energy access and equity in, 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 uh, in countries that are not responsible <laughs> uh, the way some larger economies are for historic emissions. Thinking about how to deploy significant resources and design climate policy in a way that puts front and center issues of equity and race and justice um, has really taken an enormous, is in a very different place now, that conversation. And that's really important and will be a major focus for how I think you see climate policy designed. 
Uh, that's going to do it for us for this first portion here. Um, Professor Bordoff, uh, Minister McKenna, thank you. Uh, we, we have tons of questions that we didn't get to, um, but I'm going to, Minister McKenna, I'm going to send them to your team um, <laughs> right. uh, if you guys want to uh, dive into I'll it a little bit. I'll do the answers in question period. I'll just exactly. like... <laughs> Uh, but thank you very much for, for joining us um, for our uh, Crisis to Resilience series today. Um, while you exit, um, I'm going to ask my response panel to uh, turn their cameras on, turn their microphones on, and we'll move move along to that. So, Minister McKenna, Jason, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Great. Thank thanks, you. Jason. Thanks. Bye.